0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Book and Film Globe podcast. I am Neil Pollock, the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com, a Sea of Reads media company. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and so much more. We have a great show for you this week. We're going to talk to critic Kenji Fujishima about a re-release of Park Chan-wook's South Korean classic revenge thriller Old Boy, now restored and playing in select cinemas around the country. I saw it and uh, was really blown away by it. And we're going to talk to Kenji about that movie and about uh, Park Chan-wook's Vengeance trilogy in general. We're also going to talk to TV critic Paula Schaefer about season two of The Wheel of Time, a fantasy series on Amazon Prime. Your mileage may vary, but if you like costume fantasy stuff, it may be for you. But first. We're an international show. We're an international publication, and we cover the world of film. And Kaveh Gelinas, one of our critics, was in Venice recently for the Venice International Film Festival, and he and I are going to talk about his experiences there right after this International Musical Interlude. Book and Film Globe, per its name, is an international publication. And we have international correspondents traveling the world, attending film festivals, and I suppose reading books as well, but you can really read a book anywhere. But uh, film festivals, uh, film festival season spans several continents, or at least two continents, and the Venice International Film Festival has just concluded, and we had a man on the ground there. Cabe Jalinas was in Venice seeing movies and making the scene, and he's here with me today to talk about uh, his experiences at the Venice International Film Festival. Hello. Hi, Neil. So, film festivals are interesting uh, right now because stars, the actors can't really attend them. The, uh, the actors and the, I guess, writer, no one cares if a writer goes to a festival or not, but the, the, the actors can't really publicize them. Although I did see that there were some celebrities kind of skirting around at Venice.
1: Yeah, I... I think Venice is particularly interesting because it is the first fall film festival. And it's the first film festival that's been really affected by the strikes because the SAG strike started after Cannes. And I think a lot of the, the fears about festivals in the fall were really pinned towards Venice because Venice will set the standard for how the other festivals operate because it's such a glamorous event. And it's really about people coming for the red carpet to see these stars for the first time premiering what will be most of the fall slate, if not all of it.
0: Yeah, you have uh, Toronto coming up very shortly and also the New York Film Festival. Venice is always the kickoff. But there were some celebrities who were out there. I think it's because they were doing movies that weren't um, affiliated with uh, Guild signatory uh, production studios or companies, right?
1: Exactly. And it's mostly A24 and Neon Films from what I saw because those films that got interim agreements are not part of the AMPTP is what I believe the abbreviation is. I think it's interesting now, especially with TIFF coming up and New York, which are more, I would say, public-facing festivals compared to Venice. Venice is a very, very public affair, but there is also this separation of, there's no real Q&As with the stars. They're really there to represent their movies, and that is it, and to provide this, again, glitzy and glamoury appearance. So I think a lot of movies now are trying to secure those interim agreements. And with Venice, it was two or three days before people would find out. That their movie had been cleared, and then have to travel to Lido to promote it.
0: Yeah, I don't really feel sorry for someone like Adam. Drexler. I'm sure he has access to uh, some good air transport. Uh, he does not. He's not going to have to uh, be packing packing into the the back row of a Luf- Lufthansa coach cabin or anything, <laughs> right? Like 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 you did in order to get to Venice. Um, but uh, regardless, um, you know, the slate looked. Uh, Pretty compelling this year. It looks like there are some uh, they like they they premiered uh Poor Things, the new Yorgos Latimos film, as well as as a lot of other movies that got some attention.
1: Yeah, it was a I would say a good festival, if not the typical film festival where I'm and I mentioned this in the piece, for those who go for the movies, which is myself, like I I will book myself from 8 a.m. to midnight every day just to see as many movies as I can. I think there's a lot to unpack because there's there's some great stuff, there's some fine stuff, and then there's some stuff that's just really bad. I I was only there for the first weekend of the fest, but they they managed to premiere quite a bit of things. Tell tell us what you saw. Um, poor things by far the new Lanthimos is my favorite movie. I thought Emma Stone is honestly has never been better in a performance, and that comes from someone who's a huge Emma Stone fan. I think it's pretty grounded for a Lanthimos movie. I don't know if you've seen The Killing of a Sacred Deer or The Lobster, but I thought this was a lot more friendly to audiences while still being, like, somewhat inaccessible. It's just a beautifully renditioned story. It runs through its two two two-and-a-half-hour runtime. I did see a couple of biopics. Bradley Cooper's Maestro and... Oh, Michael Mann's Ferrari.
0: Ferrari, yeah. We wrote about Maestro on the site because there was a controversy over Bradley Cooper's Junos.
1: I... I was thinking about that while watching the movie, actually, because I think both those biopics are different than what people are expecting. And I think part of that is just biopics have become so saturated as a genre. It's people wanting to stuff in an entire person's life. And what is basically their Wikipedia page into a two-hour movie? I think the reason Maestro suffers is because it tries to do that and packs 25 years of relationship into one movie while still being good and poetic in its own way. And I think the reason Ferrari is most successful, even if the story is a little too specific is that it's set in one year, in 1957. So it was interesting to see those two biopics kind of invert what the modern biopic has become, especially with, in the age of Bohemian Rhapsody is what I like to say, where all biopics are really just trying to cover the hits so that fans will connect with them, which I don't really think is the point of telling someone's story.
0: Actually, it doesn't strike me that Michael Mann is going to do a a particularly conventional biopic. I mean, he's a very highly stylized, kind of director. It's just like you wouldn't expect Baz Luhrmann to do a sort of paint-by-numbers Elvis biopic, which he did not do.
1: Yeah, and I think part of that is you set yourself up for such high expectations because, again, you know it's Michael Mann. You know it's Baz Luhrmann. I think with Michael Mann, it's a little more forced in that sense. I think Baz Luhrmann has done similar types of things to Elvis, whereas with Michael Mann, I always think of he and Collateral and these like really gritty movies, and Ferrari isn't that It is in certain senses, but it's also it functions so much like a normal biopic, even though it is such a specific story that it almost makes it weird to even think that this is a Michael Mann movie. And it's hard. I think that's where the shortcomings will come when people see this movie and when it releases. I believe it's coming out on Christmas. It is playing a couple more festivals before that. But I think part of that is just you set yourself up and you tie yourself to the filmmaker that it's kind of hard to believe that this is their first project in what has been like. I think seven or eight years. I think I think Black Hat was his last movie, which was 2016, if I'm not mistaken.
0: Yeah, um, well, I'm, I mean, I'm looking forward to it. As uh, we we talked about uh, Grand Turismo on the show a couple weeks ago, I have a an automotive background, strangely enough, a sort of a car racing background. At least, uh, at least I've covered the car industry, so I'm kind of intrigued to see uh, what he does with that this little slice of automotive history. So, all right, so we've got we've got poor things. We have Ferrari. We have Maestro. What else uh, really um, grabbed your attention this year?
1: There were a lot of little movies that I saw as well. I don't want to spend too much time talking about them, and I think this is where the real film festival aspect shines. Is you just you find a lot of things that are that are good or that are decent that you don't really want to think about past that or too deeply. There are a couple of things that I just really didn't like that I do want to talk about. Okay. The main two being Harmony Korine's Agro Drift. And I want to preface this by saying I'm not actually a huge Harmony Korine fan. He's the director of Spring Breakers, Trash Humpers. This is an 80-minute movie starring Travis Scott, shot entirely in infrared. I think it's booked at pretty much every fall festival at midnight. And it's weird to book a movie at midnight, even though I don't think this could play at any other time. But it makes you want to fall asleep so badly that it's almost dangerous to put it at that time because i managed to doze off a couple of times. To be fair, you were jet lagged. I was, but I'm, I'm willing to admit it's the movie. It, it was just, it's such an odd movie. And I like, I like movies that take risks. I think this is an interesting experiment and I can't imagine another filmmaker doing it. But 20 minutes into the movie, you kind of realize why no other filmmaker would do this just because it doesn't work. <laughs> right. And I, um, I do need to talk about the Roman Polanski movie, which has created a lot of controversy because it is Roman Polanski. And a lot of people are blaming. I saw on Twitter slash X, they're blaming the critic score of zero percent on this movie on people just not liking Polanski.
0: Is that the Emil Zola movie, or that was that was his previous movie, right? That's not that's not the one you're talking about.
1: No, I'm talking about this movie called The Palace, which is set in a glitzy Swedish, not Swedish, Swiss hotel on New Year's Eve 2000.
0: Oh, uh, okay. It was that bad, huh?
1: Yeah. So I I'm not a Polanski fan, obviously. This is just a horrendous movie. Like it is so deeply unfunny and it wants to be funny to the point where it's just embarrassing to watch. When the crowd laughed at the movie, I felt embarrassed for them because I was like, how is anyone finding this funny? Or are you even finding this funny or do you just want to blend in to the audience? Because it is just so forced and derived. And it's hard to imagine that a filmmaker could even do this. And I love film. I write about it all the time. I talk about it all the time. But it is important to recognize, like, sometimes just because you can make a movie doesn't mean you should. And that's what I felt with this movie, just because it is so painful to sit through. Well,
0: we're not in danger of getting uh, any Roman Polanski movie released in the States anyway.
1: That is true. That is true.
0: Because, you know, uh, Stephen Garrett, one of our film critics, sent me a link to Polanski's uh, Dreyfus Affair movie that he made that's supposedly pretty good. But I, I mean, I haven't watched it yet. And there's just really no way to see these movies. Speaking of, uh, did you get a chance to g- get a look at the new uh, the new and possibly last Woody Allen movie?
1: I did not. So there were a lot of things that premiered the day I left. So I missed the Fincher movie. I missed Priscilla. I missed, uh, I think it's Coupe de Chance is what it's called. I think there's like a trilogy of controversial films because of their directors. And the third one would be Luc, uh, Luc Besson's Dogman, which I did see. And I... I'm not really a Besson guy at all. The professional is good, um, but like his recent stuff, his Hollywood hits have just not been doing it for me. And I think this was an example of it. It feels like a movie that is from the 1990s, but not in a good way. It's just a derived action flick, but I did not, I did not see the Woody Allen movie. And I think that this was an interesting festival. And I do want to talk about just the vibe of it a little bit before we wrap up. Yes. Because I was there for a lot of premieres and... I think, and again, I read about this in the piece a little bit, that if you're there to watch movies or just socialize, the festival is completely normal. I, I went last year. We talked on the pod last year about this as well. The only way I can com- describe Venice as a festival is it feels like a music festival, the way you walk into security. It's an outdoor area that like, people are sitting, having spritzes, talking, and that, that was very much here this year. I just saw an article on Deadline that the attendance actually went up this year, and I think that was reflective in how packed Everywhere was. I mean, the lines to the bathroom were absurd. There is just something missing. To me, the biggest loss was understanding that because of studios' greed and willingness and unwillingness to pay their creatives, artists just can't be there to watch the product they've made play out for the first time and see an audience react to it in real time, especially with Venetian audiences who like can just clap all the time. It's it's frankly absurd. And I think that's where the loss is felt, like especially with Maestro premiering, whereas that's Bradley Cooper's second feature that he directed that he stars in. And it's just sad that actors aren't being paid and they actually can't come to anchor their movies and really represent it. And because of that, there's nothing really to talk about on a global level from the festival. The opening night movie was supposed to be Luca Guaranino's Challengers with Zendaya. And that would have created online buzz. Whereas now the opening film was an Italian movie called Comandante that I did see, but I haven't heard anyone talk about at all just because it is so niched.
0: But that's, you know, that's part of the, you know, there's a sort of a tragic uh, reckoning going on in Hollywood right now. And I think this fall, we're going to start to see it really come come to um, chickens coming home to roost, right? Like, you know, they're able to kind of get, get away with it for the, in the summer because the summer movies are so franchise driven and so sort of action and fan driven. But when the fall film season comes along, which is typically what I like to call quality movie season for whatever that's worth, it's Oscar based season you need that that extra layer of uh, creatives actually doing stuff that they're proud of, as opposed to stuff that they're just, they're kind of cashing a big check for. And you need, you need, you need to sort of have them involved.
1: Exactly. And I think this is what puts the fall film festival season as well. An interesting point is because as I said earlier, Venice is really just stars making appearances. They're, the things everyone talks about are things that happen on the red carpet. I'm just thinking of, The Timothy Chalamet outfit last year that everyone was freaking out about or the Don't Worry Darling stuff, which I did write about for the site um, about Harry Styles spitting on Chris Pine. Those really aren't interactive things with the audiences. Whereas most film festivals from here on out really base themselves around giving audiences the chance to sit in a room with the stars of the movie in the form of Q&A. So it's going to be interesting to see how they manage to do that. And I think that's why so many interim agreements are coming out now because independent films are scrambling to make sure that they can get the stars to promote them in a time where they can have that direct audience impact
0: all right well cave was in venice i'm jealous again this year Some you know, someday I'll, i've been to, i have been to venice but uh, someday i'll get there and uh i could go see some movies on the lido i, I would uh I'd, I'd relish the opportunity
1: i'm rooting for you
0: all right well you know i i could you you know you could put in a good word for
1: me. I'll, I'll pass on the word. don't don't worry.
0: Let them know I'm interested. All <laughs> right. thank you so much for talking to me about the Venice Film Festival and for writing about it for the site. Thanks, Neil. So a couple of weeks ago on Book and Film Globe, we ran an article about a remastering of Park Chan-wook's classic South Korean revenge thriller, Old Boy, uh, which, has, uh, which is in select theaters now in a, um, a new version, a new sort of uh, more modern looking version. And Kenji Fujishima, one of our critics, wrote about it for us. And used it as an occasion to um, talk about um, Park Chan Wook's uh, Vengeance trilogy. I mean, he didn't seem to think that Old Boy is the the lesser of of the three movies. I mean, it's certainly the best known, but uh, taken together, they're sort of a they're they're a piece of cinematic history that needs to be discussed. And he is here uh, with me today to discuss it. Hello, Kenji. Hi, Neil. Hello. So, all right. So, here's the thing. For some reason, even though I am, you know, a, a great lover of cinema and I have seen many movies, uh, "Old Boy" had had never uh, crossed my transom for one reason or another. And I went to see this uh, reissue of it at the uh, local Alamo Draft House, and you know, I got to say, Kenji, this movie blew my mind, <laughs> absolutely blew my mind. You know, it was it was, it was so um, so operatic, right? It it is just it, it is a extremely violent revenge thriller. But it's also this kind of intricately plotted. I wouldn't. It's not a Shakespearean tragedy. It's really like a Greek tragedy. It's like a modern. Yes. It's like a modern version of Oedipus the King. Really, when it when it comes. Out.
2: So yes. Am I am I right in 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 kind of piecing that together? Uh, uh, I think you're uh, very accurate in describing it that way. And uh, I mean, I think even Park has talked about it in those terms. So <laughs> you're, you're on the money. I'd say. <laughs> You know, the, And the movie, you know, gets its attention. There's a scene where the protagonist eats a live
0: octopus, which was freaking disgusting. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's some, you know, there's hands and fingers getting cut off and teeth getting pulled out and, you know, all kinds of evisceration and just heavy violence with hammers and other things. Mm-hmm. But the movie, I feel like, um, has this extremely, like, intense and, and moving emotional core that I, I, I found myself thinking about it for hours afterwards.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, honestly, this reaction was pretty similar to mine when I saw it for the first time back in, well, I didn't see it in theaters, unfortunately, because uh, I wasn't living in New York City at the time, but uh, uh, I would I, I eventually caught up with it on DVD, maybe like 2005 or so. But like, I really, I had not seen anything quite like it myself And it's interesting that, like, I only kind of realized this in context, but, like, when Old Boy came out, it was part of, I think there was, if I remember correctly, there was a lot of talk back then about, like, a Korean new wave. There were a lot of films coming out that were, there were genre films like that, some of them more violent than others. And and there was a lot of talk about, like, extreme cinema, and there was a lot of Korean films that were kind of following that kind of mindset, so... (laughs)
0: I liken this movie to something like a, uh, you know, uh, Pulp Fiction, um, in that it's formally, it, it's not, it's pretty innovative. You know, the way the story is structured is not, um, it's not conventional, you know, so it reminds me in some ways of like early Christopher Nolan or Quentin Terrence, yeah. uh, for sure. Um, there are moments of just like kind of tedium of like detective work or just conversations, but it's also intricately structured. And I got to admit, Kenji, there's, there's a few reveals in the movie, but the big reveal, the one that comes about 15 minutes before the end, I, I I literally, yeah, I literally gasped. You know, I was like, you know, it was shocking and I was, and it made perfect sense. And I, I see a lot of movies, right? So it's very rare. It's very rare that like a movie catches
2: me like that you know? That's, that's great to hear because like, I mean, like, I mean, it's glad I'm glad to hear that it still has that impact. I mean, like this movie has been out for like, was made 20 years ago, but I mean, and even revisiting it for the piece that I wrote, I mean, it still has a, like a primal power to it. So like, what's your, what's your own like experience with Park Chan-wook's filmography?
0: I mean, I I saw a decision to leave
2: when it, uh, came
0: out last year, and you know, I that was an I thought it was an excellent film, and I I, I believe that's that's the only other one I've seen, honestly. Like yeah. you discuss in in your um, piece, this his Vengeance trilogy. There was a Lady Vengeance, which I believe is the second one, right?
2: And then there, there's a third movie. Uh, well. The uh, well, actually, actually, Old Boy is the second one because that okay. came out after Sympathy for Mister Vengeance, and Lady Vengeance followed Old Boy, so Lady Vengeance would be third. And you think that three these three movies work really well as as a in a piece, right? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, they're they're very like thematically, they're you know they all are tied to like vengeance, like uh, and the ways people go about it, and the ways that people believe that revenge will somehow I don't know cleanse their uh, souls, make things right, and uh, all three films are are out to show that that is just. Uh, basically impossible. Well,
0: there's nothing satisfying about it, right? Like, really, like, what he seems to be saying is
2: probably the best path is some sort of forgiveness, not vengeance. Yeah, well, the, yeah, I mean, and that, granted, that's not, like, a new theme, but just the way that Park uh, explores it, and in very different ways in all three movies, which is part of the reason why uh, I wanted to write the piece that I did, because, like, it, it's a very stylistically versatile trilogy, because Old Boy, uh, I mean, partly because it won some major awards at festivals, captured, captured the, the popular, uh, I guess, quote unquote, popular imagination, and partly because of just how much stylistic brio Park brings to it. Uh, and I mean, if you've seen Decision Leave, you know that he is certainly capable of finding interesting ways to freshen up genre. Books. And, you know, that's in full force in Old Boy. But, Oh, in sympathy for Mr. Vengeance, for instance, it, it it that is a much colder like Old Boy is a very passionate movie, and you can tell with just the editing and the use of color. Uh, by comparison, Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance feels like a very austere, very chilly, like Stanley Kubrick like movie because it like it has a very detached perspective on all of the characters it presents and how they're all kind of blinded by their own agendas and aren't willing to step outside their perspectives and view things from another's which is often the case with people that are like hell-bent on revenge they they're looking for their own satisfaction and are unwilling to sum up maybe the empathy to see things from another perspective
0: and, and then Lady
2: Vengeance, which is sort of a slightly less popular
0: than Old Boy, but a slightly better known than uh, Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance. How does that fit into the, the
2: mix? I mean, in some ways it is just as stylistically operatic as Old Boy is. I mean, part of what makes Lady Vengeance interesting is, I mean, to some degree, it is the fact that it focuses on a on a female protagonist. In this case, I mean, the movie, at least in the U.S., came out not too long after Tarantino's Kill Bill movies. So, I mean, some some people might not might have uh, seen it and compared it to that, and maybe found it kind of wanting. I remember I I, I liked it, but back when I saw it in like 2006 or seven, and but was maybe a little uh, not as not as enthused about it as the the two other vengeance films in Parks trilogy, and it's not really fair to try to compare something to
0: Kill Bill, which is so yeah. big, you know, such a big operatic project in its own right, you know, and 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 a you know masterpiece for sure. And I, I would um I would argue you know Old Boy is definitely uh, a masterwork, and I think a transformational film. I know that it's um it's not on the um on the shopping list of sort of your average average Joe moviegoer, but I think in terms of who like love movies, uh, it's like a direct it's like a director's movie. Like there there there's so there's so much um style and so much emotion and just and just the way the plot unfolds, you know, there's just there's a lot to learn. I guess if you're a movie, if you want to make movies, this is even though I would say like. You know the gross-out movements movements are are they're pretty gross. So it's like if you're if you're if you're squeamish, you know, if you if you like um if you like you know Jane Austen or chamber dramas or whatever, this is this is you know what I mean. This isn't for you. But it just in term, but it's so big and so operatic and so you know cool in 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 the way it's structured that
2: I mean I couldn't recommend it more highly. And I I will say the, the thing the thing that's interesting about the violence in these movies is that like yeah so it has you know, it has a reputation they all have a reputation for being like ultra violent, but I think it's worth noting just the way that Park approaches the violence, like films it. I, I mean I think yeah, there's some scenes like in Old Boy, like even parts where like people's teeth are being like pulled out of like pulled out, like Park isn't he doesn't necessarily show all of it. He Leaves a lot to the image. I some of it's like it's the way he like cuts away from things, yes, agreed. And he, and he doesn't glorify
0: it, it's all very kind of yeah. gritty and painful and realistic. Even the yeah. sort of the hammer fight scene in the hallway of the prison, which is sort of it's the major action set piece of the film, is just like it's just a brutal um punch fest, you know. And you just see the people wr- yeah. writhing on the ground, you know, they, they're not, it's not John Wick. Yeah. Right, they're not. No, uh, no. you know what I mean. It's not a cartoon. It yeah, yeah. feel like a cartoon.
2: Yeah. Well, I, interesting that because technically it was adapted from a manga, so I mean it has like, I guess you could say, like comic book origins. But uh, and so that, that to some degree that might explain Parks' approach to the film. So he's trying to honor its origins, but also bring his own, I would argue, like moral sensibility to it, because as Agreed. much as, as as like as maybe like uh sensational as it is i i think that uh, i think there is like a moral intelligence underneath it all and i mean that's why i think sympathy for mr vengeance is very much worth seeing i mean it's a very different register but like if you want if you want to really be devastated by like just how pointless ultimately pointless revenge is that movie will absolutely leave you that way at the end like it doesn't doesn't even have like you know old boy ends with like you know the the return of that waltz theme that you hear every once in a while in in the movie yeah it's not a hat it's more of a bittersweet ending than a a
0: complete tragic ending but regardless um i would uh encourage anyone if old the old boy restoration is playing in a theater uh near you i would encourage you to uh, go see it and Kenji. I, and I, by uh, um, you know, extension, encourage you to seek out uh, the other two movies in Park Chan Wook's Vengeance trilogy wherever you can find them on streaming. It's hard. It's hard to find stuff sometimes these days. But um, you, if you look, if you look hard enough, you'll be able to get it. Kenji Fukushima, thank you so much for uh, encouraging me to go see Old Boy. Uh, I will. Ne- I, I will never forget it. And uh, I, I look forward to having you in the pages of Book and Film Globe again
2: soon. Oh thank you for having me. I'm glad I'm glad my piece helped you turn you on to
0: You changed
3: my
2: life, Genji. You changed my life. What can I say? Music to critics ears, yeah, I to to tell in. you.
1: <laughs> the whole world will be ours. If our friends were in trouble, why would that ever stay here? You have no
0: conception of the power they need. You can't do this by yourself.
1: There are many paths
0: to walk through the night. It's not always the most powerful who write
3: history. It's the ones who survive.
1: I'm tired of being a spoke in the wheel.
0: You're not a spoke, boy. You are the water that turns the wheel itself. There was a flurry of fantasy TV last year. We had a new Lord of the Rings show. We had House of the Dragon, the Game of Thrones prequel series. And we also had The Wheel of Time, which was an adaptation of uh, Robert Jordan's uh, fantasy novels. Uh, it came out on Amazon Prime, and uh, Wheel of Time, I would say, got the, the worst reviews of the three of those, although The Lord of the Rings was certainly no great shakes. But nonetheless, it is the first one back through the gate with the second season. They made a second season of The Wheel of Time, and Paula Schaefer has written about it for us on Book and Film Globe, and she's here today to talk with me about Wheel of Time Season 2. Hello, Paula.
3: Hey, I sure am ready to talk Wheel of Time.
0: Yeah. So, well, you've actually watched it. Unlike me, I just have, I just, I really like, I I, I thought the um, first season was such fantasy gobbledygook and I hadn't read the books to be honest. So I I just, I just, I can't quite bring myself to watch it. But as I was saying to you before we started recording, my wife is threatening to watch it without me because she likes fantasy shows and I'm I'm pleading with her to, to make that a reality.
3: Yeah I mean you're not missing a lot unfortunately the first season was so clunky and uneven and the pacing was all over but I had a really high hopes that after they got all that out of the way and all the heavy work of world building they'd really get into a groove and so far not really no.
0: They haven't gotten into a a groove they they don't they haven't released the entire season right you're just Looking at a couple episodes,
3: right? This is just based on one where it's good. I mean, the first several episodes are better than last season, but that's like saying I don't know. Snapple is better than Nesty, like okay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, it is, uh, yes. But well, so the, the premise of the show is that um, there's some sort of person born to save the world, some guy. Um, but it turns out we didn't know who we, we, we hadn't figured out who that person was the whole first season was searching for them. And then we figured out who it was. Um, and, and Rosamund Pike plays some sort of super witch who, um, is, sort of has to train him. Is that kind of how it goes?
3: No, she doesn't train him, because in the show, they're, they're, the system of magic is broken, and women can only channel one the, the power one way, and men can only power it the other way. And it makes women more powerful, and it makes the men go crazy. So they can't even like use or help with each other's magics, because they're completely different, and like a woman who can channel magic can't even see when the man is trying to channel magic. I mean, I just feel
0: like that's a nice – that's a good uh, metaphor for relationships in general.
3: True, true. Yeah, I mean, there is – Men's magic
0: <laughs> is from Mars. Women's magic is from Venus, Paula.
3: <laughs> that's what's happening here, yes. Um, no, she, she's trying to guide him to go up against the Dark One to save the world.
0: And the Dark One is a representative of the uh, American Association of Movie and Television Producers, I'm assuming. I think it might be yes. I mean, let's let's face it. That's who the current the current uh, big enemy is in Hollywood. So sorry. So let's talk about. It. So 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 we got Rosamond Pike. I, I loved your description in your piece of how she's like basically like like the chief cosplayer at a Ren Fair.
3: Yeah, she is not good at this. I know people enjoy her. But her take on being a, you know, high fantasy leading character is just to have serious face all the time and sometimes crinkle her eyes a little bit. And she's very stiff and very unnatural and uncomfortable. And it really just gives off the vibe of someone at the Renaissance Fair who's, you know, wearing that dress for the first time. And they're they're trying to really sell it.
0: Well, you know what? I- and that thing is like, she's the, she's the name, she's the big name in the show. Uh, you know, the rest of them are sort of anonymous actors in, in some ways. And, you know, it's like, I feel like when you're playing a role like this, you need to bring sort of a, a sense of high camp to it. You know, that's what made House of the Dragons so good is that they, they, all the performances were just, were just pitched to this like 11th degree where it was just like, everything has, was so big, you know, and operatic. And I felt like when I when I was watching Wheel of Time, it felt it felt like a, a little boring, like a l- little bit like a you know One Tree Hill, but where with you know with uh, medieval costumes.
3: Yeah, what it reminds me of is the Vampire Diaries, yeah. which has heavy lore and heavy lifting storytelling like you could not turn on season four of vampire diaries and know what they were even talking about because it's so lost in its own world building ideas and everybody is very very serious about it yeah that's great and all but that's not what this series is meant to be yeah i mean
0: this could go on for a while, assuming
3: the ratings are good, although I don't know how they will be, because there's many books, right? Yeah, I think they actually already renewed it for season two and three when they renewed it last time. So I
0: guess Amazon is just, uh, you know, has this, it's unlimited pocketbook. It's pouring. It, they must I bet you Amazon Publishing owns the rights to the Wheel of Time books or something. There's some, there's some sort of corporate synergy going on here.
3: Oh, absolutely. There's, there's a reason for them to do this. That is beyond just, Oh, we are passionate about this story that we are changing everything about and telling in the most convoluted clunky way.
0: Yeah. And so, you know, you're a, you're a fantasy person. I mean, uh, to some extent, it, uh, you're not a fantasy person, but you're a, a fan of.
3: <laughs> you're an actual, That's right. I am well, a fantasy person. You're an actual
0: person who is a fan of the fantasy genre. Um, But is there any enthusiasm in the community for this show?
3: So people that I know who are really into the Wheel of Time hate this mostly because it changes so many of the core principles of the book to try to make it a more like modern contemporary story, you know, like they've centered it on rosamund pike's character because she's the name and really it's really mostly the story of the white guy who's a hero and that's that's not what people are really about right now so it's weird to make it right now also
0: all right well uh so if fans of the books don't like the show i'm wondering who does but uh, regardless it's gonna occasionally air in my house because uh it has it has lady witches in it <laughs>
3: Yeah, I'll watch it for that reason too, and because I'm curious. You know, like, sure, they're cutting out characters and they're changing things because you have to. It's there. There's too much, and and I'm curious. Like, I don't hate it that they're focusing more on a lot of people, and you know, it looks pretty. I'll watch it.
0: All right, you're watching it. Then that 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 pretty much I'll I'll watch it. Is like in some ways, like what do you? What else do you? what, What what other kind of endorsement do you want if you're making a TV show? If someone says they'll watch it, then you've done your job. Uh, and Paula Schaefer has done her job for us and has reviewed Wheel of Time, The Wheel of Time Season 2, now airing on Amazon Prime. Uh, Paula, what, what do they have a
3: catchphrase in The Wheel of Time that they say? Yes, the wheel weaves as the wheel wills.
0: Yeah, so that. <laughs> Talk to you soon.
3: <laughs> Try to say that ten times fast.
0: <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot, Paula Schaefer. The big wheel keeps on turning, or whatever they say in that show, The Wheel of Time, season two, now airing on Amazon Prime. Also, thanks to Kenji Fujishima for talking to me about Park Chan-wook's Old Boy, now restored and in theaters where you uh, where you live, hopefully where you live. Uh, also, we talked to him about Park Chan-wook's Vengeance trilogy in general. And thanks to Kaveh Jolinas for going to Venice although he doesn't need thanks, what a a treat it was for him to go, but thanks to talking to us about the Venice International Film Festival and what he saw there. I want to go there someday, and maybe someday I will. I am Neil Pollock. I am the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the world of books and film and streaming TV. We covered the Venice Film Festival this week. Coming up soon, we're gonna cover the Toronto and New York Film Festival. If there's a festival, We're going to be there. I'm going to Fantastic Fest in Austin. So we're going to see every movie. We're going to see every movie ever made. And then we're going to talk about them on the show and on the site. And we will talk to you soon.
1: Original production.